The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about social media and all sorts of other Really fascinating topics for privacy, and we have a privacy professor with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about Woodrow Hartog. He is an assistant professor at the Cumberland School of Law at Samford University in Alabama. He's also an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. Those kind of sound similar. His research focuses on privacy, online communication, human-computer interactions, robotics, and electronic agreements. And he is, his work has been published in law reviews and peer-reviewed publications such as the California Law Review, Michigan Law Review, Georgia Law Review, American Law, American University Law Review, Temple Law Review, and more. And actually, I know that he's writing a law review article uh, right now that's going to be published soon. He's previously worked as a trademark attorney at the United States Patent, Patent and Trademark Office, and he served as a clerk for the Electronic Privacy Information Center. We've had them on the show, and he's doing all sorts of wonderful work, and he even blogs at cyberlaw.stanford.edu, which you can see his blogs there, and we're just thrilled to have him all the way from Alabama. Thank you so much for joining us, Woodrow. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, before we get started about social media, why don't you tell us a little about about your law review article that you're working on? Sure. So I got to thinking, this is a law review article that I'm working on for uh, the Ohio State Law Journal. They recently had a symposium called The Second Wave of Global Privacy Protections. And the first wave of global privacy protections kind of got started with a lot of the statutes that we now know and love, such, such as Gramm-Leach-Bliley and HIPAA, and they were based on this set of guidelines that many people are familiar with, known as the FIPS, the Fair Information Practice Principles. And I got to thinking about how the FIPS are largely based around the technology of databases, the idea that information can be electronically stored and aggregated represents a threat to privacy. And a lot of our doctrine surrounding privacy law has, has been focused on that one particular technology. But in my mind, social technologies have presented an additional threat to a lot of what we see as, as our privacy, things that we refer to as our privacy. And so my goal with this 
paper is to develop kind of a sort of FIPS for social media, which is to say the front end of social media. Of course, a lot of the threats that people talk about with respect to social media are database related. So the, the What They Know, the Wall Street Journal's Excellent Series, kind of tracks all of the information that we're leaving behind as we socially interact. But I'm concerned with what others can see. So James Groman calls this the peer threat of social technologies, and it's something that I'm interested in, and I'm wondering if we can look at some of the laws that are being enacted now, some of the codes of conduct that are being adhered to, and can we discern any set of principles, kind of like the FIPS represent this guiding this, this set of guidelines for lawmakers and organizations and um, kind of a blueprint. You know, I think that's fascinating because, you know, when we think about all the people, like we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, right? And everybody probably uses social media. Even I, as a as a privacy advocate, I use social media. I'm very careful what I put up in the social media, but I, you know, I have my Facebook, I have um, Twitter, I have my LinkedIn. And, you know, I mean, I have to think before I put something up there, but still, you know, it's, it is really kind of scary because you don't know how something could be interpreted when I'm an expert witness. I don't know what they're going to say about something that's up there, you know, on my website that it's public, you know, my social media website. And I don't know how it might be used by the government or, you know, I, I may not even have, you know, any fathom of how it might hurt me. And I think that's a huge issue because people are on there thinking that they're communicating with their friends across the country. Right. So, so what are some of the, I know you're writing the articles, I don't know if you have the answers, but what are some of the guidelines that maybe we should have? I know in California and other states, they're saying, well, you know, employers can't use it to make a decision, can't, can't, can't force you um, to give up your, your uh, password to get in. Okay. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the types of guidelines that that you think would be helpful. Do you have those in, in sure. your brain yet? Okay. Sure. And actually, so you you bring up a really good example of what I plan to use in the paper. So this is an example of a law that's not aimed at the protection of information stored in a database. Rather, this is a law, and, and there are actually, I believe. Uh, six or seven states at this point that now have rules that prohibit employers from asking for some kind of social media access. Some of them say you can't ask for passwords. Some of them say you can't ask for access. And there are various different ways that an employer could seek access to an employee's social media profile. But this is the perfect example of kind of the this new wave of laws that we're going to see to address some of these problems of what I'm calling social data. So not big data, which is the database, but social data, which is really driven by disclosure via the user interface. And, it's and yeah, I want us to stop you right there because I think that's so important when we talk about big data. That's data that's in the credit bureaus, databases, and, right. your, and your banks. And I just want to, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know if my audience does. So that's why I want to clarify what's what because sure. you right, and I right. get so we, it. Yeah. We colloquially refer to these 
you know, tons and tons of data stored on electronically database, electronic databases across the nation as, as big data. And sometimes it's used to refer to the entity. Sometimes it's used to refer to the actual information itself and the fact that there's just so much of it. Um, but I'm kind of throwing out this term of, of social data as a way and I to... Wanna, I want to stop you once again because sure. the, the, um, the huge difference from my perspective is the big data is not data that we actually even know what's in their databases often, you know, That's right. and it's not stuff we put in there as opposed to social data, which we personally put in there or our friends put on our on our Facebook. Right. So exactly. it's like so it's at least it's transparent, unlike many of the big databases, except for the credit bureaus. We don't know even what they've got in our bank database, right? And exactly. I think that's a huge difference. It's what are we volunteering there or our friends are volunteering on our behalf. Right. And so you've actually articulated the need for two different sets of guidelines because the concerns between databases and information that we disclose via user interfaces are actually two different concerns. And, and I think that you're exactly right to say that one of the reasons it's so that databases are so concerning is that we don't exactly know what about us is stored. And that's actually one of the, the fair information practice principles is that we should be able to, to know what about us is being stored and have some kind of control over those databases. But the concerns are different when we're sharing information via some kind of a mediated technology. And we know what we're disclosing, but we might not have we not, not, might not be able to project exactly how that information is going to be used, which you brought up earlier. We disclose information now, but you know, three years down the road, is that information going to seem just as relevant? And so, as best I can tell, and, and to get back to your earlier question, there are really three main things that we should be concerned about and maybe that we should sculpt our guidelines around. The first is respect for boundaries. Right, and there are many different kinds of boundaries. There's limitations on who you can disclose to. There are time limitations. So after a certain amount of time, because social media is intended to be ephemeral and and uh, you should you know theoretically die away over time. There are, there are temporal boundaries, and so one guideline that I would propose is respect for user established boundaries. The second guideline I would propose is respect for a user's identity. So the way that we articulate ourselves online is really important. It lends us a certain degree of autonomy to be able to define ourselves in the way that we choose. And sometimes we use pseudonyms, and sometimes we want to use our full name, and sometimes we don't want to be associated with any kind of content at all. And so it's it's very important as we interact with each other to have some kind of integrity in our own identity so that others can't act as us, yeah. so that no one can jump onto your Twitter account and act as you. And so we've seen a number of impersonation statutes that have been introduced or passed recently at the state level. And the third guideline that I've been thinking about is the integrity of the network itself. The idea that when we establish these express networks that we create by friending each other or following other people, uh, we, there's a certain integrity in, in that. And, and when an interloper, an interloper kind of comes in and poisons that integrity, am I making it untrustworthy anymore? Then that's a, that's a, 
a kind of harm that we want to avoid. And so those three major guidelines, I think, are, are going to shape the research that I'm working on now, which is boundary regulation, identity, and network integrity. Those are great, but how do you do that? Because, you know, it's so anonymous. I mean, you don't know who's doing these things to you. So how do you actually do that? I mean, you could have laws about it, but how do you enforce those laws right. when the when social media, like, for example, Facebook, I am communicating with opiers that I had when my kids were little, you know, now they have kids and they're in Denmark or Sweden or something. So, I mean, we're talking about this major world community. How do you do this kind of thing? Right. We, I think that you have to diversify. I think that just like the, not all of the FIPS are implemented in every single law that we see, you can implement some of these guidelines, these, I'm calling them the social data guidelines. You can implement some of them in law, so you can pass an impersonation statute and say you can't pretend to be someone else online. Um, but not all of them are going to be fit for legislation. Some of them are perhaps better suited for organizational policies, for example. If you're going to set some kind of a social media policy, perhaps you consider things like, uh, as a voluntary matter, don't disclose information that you've discovered on a friend's social media, or don't discover co-employees, um, you know, fellow employees. If you find information, don't disclose that information further. Or uh, if you're an employer, or potential employer, you know, you can, you have to respect the publicly expressed boundaries of users of social media, and that's just a good practice to engage in. And so the FIPS are implemented through a combination of voluntary practices and laws and other kind of regulatory, we'll say, nudges. Um, and I think that the same could be said for social media. So I, I certainly wouldn't recommend hanging my hat just on enacting a law to implement these guidelines, because I don't think that that's going to work. And I don't think it's desirable from uh, a lot of perspectives, including the free speech and, and notable First Amendment limitations on what you can do with the law. What about the actual, like, you know, the the Facebook or the, the companies that are actually have put up these these websites. What about them being accountable for taking things down? You know, I get a, when you're talking about impersonation, I find that people will call me and they can't get stuff taken down, you know? Right. And and so maybe the regulations really should deal with what the 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 Facebooks of the world and the LinkedIn's what they should be doing to help monitor this stuff, or maybe, you know, like you were talking about integrity. Like if I put up something when I'm 15 years old, am I going to want it to be available when I'm 30? Right. 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 So, and so, yeah. yeah so, so, so it should seem, it seems to me that, that the companies themselves should, you know, really say that you have a right to say when it's taken down. Right. And that's and so there are several different pressure points. You could you you could start with the company themselves and say you should really provide tools to users that allow them to protect their own information. And so this could be thought of as a principle. You know, the FTC is now pushing privacy by design. Right. And one of the things that you could incorporate into privacy by design is you could have companies say, well, I'm incorporating privacy by design by giving my users a certain amount of control over who sees their information, and that would be a positive thing. And if someone, and I have policies in place, which Facebook actually does and other social mediums do as well, 
which says that you can't pretend to be someone else on our medium. And if we find out about it, we're going to enforce it. And so enforcing their own policies is another way that you could implement some of these social data guidelines. But you could also, another pressure point are the users of the social medium. And so uh, you could say, don't disclose what you find inside of here. Or as we see with the legislation that's already being passed, another pressure point are the outsiders of the network, which are the employers that want access to social data. And you could say, well, you can't ask for that social data. And so there, there are various different ways, and I think it makes sense, depending on the context, to implement these various guidelines and to say that you know, one entity or another is, is solely responsible for shouldering this burden, I think is probably asking too much. Right. The, the one thing that I see is when people call me and, and tell me, I don't, you know, the Facebook keeps changing its policies or like, I don't even understand how I can do this or I don't know how to protect myself, making it easy and making it in such a way that the, that the people who are on Facebook, the users really can implement these, um, these, these tools, making easy tools to use, because it really isn't to Facebook's advantage that, that stuff is not uh, shared. I mean, that's how they do this for free, right? Right. So I think that's a, a real problem. How do you deal with that to make it, you know, maybe it should be a law that, you know, that it has to be really user friendly, or maybe there should be a standardization of how to do it, certain tools. Right. And so, and that's, I think that making it easy and not only making it easy, but making, making it easy to set the privacy settings So, making the privacy settings right. reliable is also another important point. There was a very interesting story that came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, a few months ago that talked about the fact that one of the kind of big seeming loopholes in the Facebook privacy settings is that other pieces of Facebook software didn't respect those settings. For example, um, users could add other Facebook users to a group that they created without their permission. And if you were added to this group and it was a public group, then it would broadcast that fact to all of your friends. And there was a, a chorus a, 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 called Queer Chorus at the University of Texas. And the creator, um, who was very excited about the group, added a lot of friends. And some of the friends that were added were not publicly out yet, and they were outed to their parents. Oh, and so dear. it became very problematic because Facebook did not respect its own, this one particular function of Facebook's technology didn't coordinate with the privacy settings. And we see a real tangible harm that arose by that lack of coordination. So that's something that I think is, is certainly a way to articulate a harm that can happen in design. And perhaps design is the answer there, is that, is that you know, we should push for a better design of social technologies. That's such an important point. Last night I had dinner with Anne Kavukian, who is the privacy commissioner in Toronto, who actually coined the privacy by design. And she's been on my show a bunch of times. You, you probably know who she is or at least yeah, know her. She's wonderful. And we were just talking about this, you know, that if you have privacy by design, that means for my audience that doesn't understand this, that you build into the architecture of whatever product or service or app or whatever you have, you build that in when you're 
actually create, it's not an afterthought. You build it in and you look around and you go, okay, if we're going to build this in, how, what are all the ramifications that could happen? And obviously that didn't happen with Facebook. They created this thing and then they didn't look at their other, how it interacted with their other, um, you know, their other programs, right? Well, possibly. I mean, it could be a conscious choice where they just decided that the importance of the group settings, you know, shouldn't override the privacy settings. But regardless, it's clear that there was some confusion, at least on the part of some users, that they expected that their privacy settings would be reliable throughout using the entire social network. And it turned out that it wasn't. And as a result, there was information that was kind of spilled over. Now, of course, the reply to that is anyone could always log on to Facebook and post something about you to their profile that you didn't want disclosed. Um, And so that's that's, something that's equally problematic. And perhaps that's where we want to put the pressure point on other users of maintaining some level of discretion with respect to the information that they come into on Facebook. Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, one of my former uh, interns who's in law school now, and and we were in Washington, D.C. at the IAPP conference, and I took her to see Capital Stack, and she took this picture of my husband and I, and, you know, we had fun, and it wasn't a, it was just a picture at the, at the show, but all of a sudden I saw it up on my Facebook and, you know, I wasn't used to that. Like, oh my gosh, somebody put a picture up of me and it was fine. It wasn't, it wasn't that flattering, but you know, it just kind of shocked me that I was only used to putting up my own pictures. So I think there should be some kind of a, um, a policy or some kind of a, a privacy thing that, that no one can put my picture up on my site or anybody else's site, that that would, I don't know how they would do that, but if there was some kind of facial recognition that it couldn't do it without my permission, it's probably, you know, I don't know if that's even possible. Well, I I think it is. And I think that this is actually, we see some of this in the policies of various social networking sites. Uh, Facebook in particular, I believe, has a policy that says that you can't post a photo of, someone on Facebook without their permission. Now, that may seem incredible to a lot of people that use Facebook, right, but, right. but I would like to say that there are probably a lot of terms in these dense boilerplate agreements that right. would be surprising if we actually went down and read them. So then the question becomes, well, to what extent is that enforced? And if it's only enforced sporadically, then right. how do we know which terms are going to be enforced and which ones aren't? But certainly, in in the defense of, of dense boilerplate legalese, which I don't rise to defend very often, um, that is a term that's a restriction on a user behavior that is, is presumably made to attempt to enforce some kind of code of conduct with respect to privacy on the social network. Yeah, it would be nice if they had a little checklist and you checked it through. Like, I right. want this one, I want this one. And, but very simple terms, not not this legalese like you're talking about. It's just like, you, right. just, you just click it. This is what I, these are the privacy settings that I want to set that's real, real clear. And it comes up as soon as you join Facebook and you can find it again easily. Um, I think that would be really helpful. Right. Kind of like a nudge, right? So there yeah. are various ways. So it's one thing to take a term and kind of slap it into this, you know, large, uh, legal agreement that, of course, no one is going to read, but it's another thing entirely than to make that policy realized in the design of the website where when something is posted or 
you know, there's a you, you allow certain kinds of facial recognition technologies to say, hey, a photo just went up of you over here on this person's profile. You should know about it. Um, and so there are ways to realize these policies, these written policies through technology that might make them more effective than if you just drop them into this document that no one is ever going to read. Right, right. That's that's that whole thing of that disconnect and that lack of real privacy by design, because privacy by design also should be even including the actual um, policies, you know, right. helping helping people to understand that, make it understandable and and helping them to understand the privacy issues. Right. We are speaking with Woodrow Hartuck, who is an assistant professor at Cumberland School of Law at Samford University in Alabama. And he doesn't sound like he has a southern accent because he's really not from there, but he's doing a great job. And he, we were talking about these issues, which really are huge. Now, let's let's go back and talk a little bit about um, how how can we reasonably claim to have any privacy in social media disclosures with so many people that can, you know, be on there? You know, you could have 600 friends or 1,000 friends that some of them you maybe never met. That's right. So this is, I think this is one of the biggest problems with the current discourse with respect to privacy and social media is it's actually the term privacy itself because the term of course has no real set definition in the law we've yet to really conclusively establish what it means to any kind of a legal certainty and some people's conceptualization of privacy is different than others and so if my conceptualization of privacy i'm really talking about confidentiality and you're talking about kind of complete secrecy in that you know once you disclose it on the web it's gone then we end up talking past each other and so i've actually said in some of my writings that privacy is not the best term to use when we're talking about social disclosure and the protection of social disclosures on the web. I think that the term obscurity is actually significantly more useful in that regard, because we're not talking about secrets. And in many instances, we're not even talking about something that's confidential. This is something that is technically you're free to share with anyone else. Yet we would still be shocked if information that we disclosed on someone else's wall post on Facebook were then broadcast on Times Square, even though technically the law tends to kind of treat those things equally. I don't know if that distinction is warranted. In the, It's not like there's an on and off switch there. Yeah, and then and then you get into this information privacy um, which is another way of, of, you know, defining privacy, which is, you know, the right to control or, uh, you know, information about you who, you know, who can have it, who can share it, who can see it and all that stuff. So, yeah, it, I think privacy is just, we are just feeling that it's, it's not real clear what it is. Well, it's a, it's a big thing, and it can mean lots of different things. And so I've said that obscurity actually is probably a much better way of getting at this because it really, uh, there, are, there are several, there are four factors really that if you think about it, we really care about with respect to who sees our personal information. And so whether something is searchable is a really big deal. Information that's not searchable is really hidden. And there's a lot on Facebook that's not searchable, at least not in the sense of general search engines like Google and Yahoo and others uh, and Bing. But 
another thing to consider is, is it protected by some kind of access restriction? Is it protected by a password? Is it protected by privacy settings? Because that's another indication that this information is hard to find or understand. Do we use a pseudonym, one that everyone knows, or is it a pseudonym that I just made up that no one could actually really link back to me without some kind of great effort? And, and is what I wrote clear, or would it only make sense to several people? And so when I log on to Facebook and I... Screen, I, I type out this status update. It's positive. That status update makes sense to no one except those that knew that I was that my wife and I have been trying to um, conceive a child, and the pregnancy test came back positive, and so they're excited for me. And so it's kind of a coded language that we can use. And all of these techniques can be used to create obscurity, which I think makes much more sense rather than saying the things on my social media profile are private, because we see that that argument doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't really resonate with judges. It's difficult to defend theoretically because you basically have to keep on redefining what you mean by the word private. And so if we just narrow down a little, I think we can actually find some common ground where people more or less agree, okay, I see what you're saying. You want it to be obscure. Well, then now let's talk about how much obscurity we need in order to feel comfortable socializing online. Well, Woodrow, we are out of time. Do you believe that? I we, wow. we, uh, There was so much more. We'll have to have you back again. It's terrific. We love you. So just give your, uh, your blog website and we got to go. Sure. Cyberlaw.stanford.edu. You can find my stuff there. And we will have you back again. Woodrow, you are terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.